Um, But today we're going to be reading out of John 17. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and flip there, uh, and we'll start in verse 1. Jesus spoke these things, looked up to heaven, and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you, since you gave him authority over all people, so that he may give eternal life to everyone you have given him. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. I have glorified you on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. I have revealed your name to the people you gave me from the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know everything you have given me is from you, because I have given them the words you gave me. They received them and have known for certain that I came from you. They have believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, because they are yours. Everything I have is yours, and everything you have is mine, and I am glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by your name that you have given me so that they um, may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I was protecting them by your name that you have given me. I guarded them, not, not, them, not one of them is lost, except the son of destruction, so that scripture may be fulfilled. Now I'm coming to you, and I speak these things in the world so that they may have my joy completed in them. I've given them your word, the word the world hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I'm not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. I sanctify myself for them, so that they may also be sanctified by the truth. I pray not only for these, but also for those who believe in me through the word. May they also be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe you sent me. I have given them the glory you have given me, so that they may be one as we are one. I am in them, and you are in me, so that they may be made completely one, that the world may know you have sent me, and have loved them just as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am so that they will see my glory, which you have given me, because you love me before the world's foundation. Righteous Father, the world has not known you. However, I have known you, and they have known that you sent me. I made your name known to them, and will continue to make it known, so that the love you have loved me with may be in them, and I may be in them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, sir. Um... Earlier this morning when the worship team kind of gathered to, to, to make sure we were all on the same page for the morning and uh, make sure everybody knew what microphone to grab and when it was your turn, uh, Kyle, Kyle Butler said, uh, and Jaden's reading today for the first time, uh, Ryan, what's he reading? I said, all of John 17. And we were like, oh, well, that's a way to start off. Um, no hard names, but it is long and it is winding, but uh, we did a great job. Beautiful, beautiful prayer. Uh, probably uh, either the first or second most famous prayer uttered by Jesus. Uh, possibly second only to what's considered the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, our Father, who art in heaven. But really, he, he gave that prayer as a prayer for the disciples to pray. This one's, this one's different. This one's so profound. 
and, uh, and so rich. In fact, I, I think that it's, it's appropriate as we conclude this section of John's gospel before his betrayal in the next chapter that we, we open up our time actually just praying and asking um, the same Jesus who offers this prayer here to his Father to, to help us see what we need to see this morning. So if you would, please bow with me in prayer. Lord, um, as Jesus calls you in this prayer, Holy Father, we pray that our eyes and our ears and our hearts will be sensitive to what your spirit would like to communicate through your perfect, perfect words. Father, I pray that we will listen to your scriptures diligently with an intent to not only know you more, but an intent to love you in our obedience all the more. I pray that our time gathered around your word and gathered in worship this morning will be fruitful, that you will delight in it, and that we will be changed as we encounter the living God. We ask you these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as I said, John 17 is the final chapter of what uh, is often described as Jesus' final discourse in John's gospel. So Jesus has, has completed his public ministry by the end of chapter 12. And then in chapters 13 through 17, Jesus is preparing his disciples for life after he's gone. And, and 17 is kind of the, the um, concluding prayer where he prays for himself. He prays for his immediate disciples, and then he, in fact, prays for us. And he, and he kind of wraps this section up, which means that after we finish our time in 17 today, for the next little bit, actually for the rest of the year, we're going we're gonna to take a break from John. Uh, next week, we will begin a series on mission on the mission of God and what that has to do with us and the part that we can play as we participate with him in the expansion of his kingdom and what that might have to do with lives shaped by the gospel and lives that are quick to evangelize. And we're going to spend about five weeks talking through God's mission in that sense, which takes us to the last Sunday of November, which will then be the first Sunday of Advent. And it's crazy to think how close the Christmas season actually is by this point. Uh, last week, I was, I was describing the, the way the calendar was going to work, and, and I mentioned the first Sunday of Advent is five weeks away, and I heard Morgan Weiss literally squeal from another office down the hall. She <laughs> told me two things. I talk louder than I think I do, but two, Morgan loves Christmas, and she's so excited. So that's what we're going to be doing for the rest of the year. We're going to talk about missions, and we're going to talk about God's mission where he, in fact, sends his son to, to die for the world and to redeem it. And then when we come back in the, in the early part of 2023, we will pick back up John and pace ourselves in such a way that we can uh, be in the resurrection account on Easter Sunday. Um, so that's, that's where we're going. Um, but I like that we end in 17. It's a neat break in terms of the gospel structure, but it's also a, a helpful springboard into a sermon series about mission, about mission. So Jesus, in effect, if I were to summarize this, this prayer, he prays that we would act like family and that the world would take notice and understand him for who he is. 
He prays that we would act like family, that the world would take notice, and that the world would understand him for who he is. And it was fun kind of working through this passage over the past couple of weeks because two Saturdays ago, we had the opportunity to have one of our membership classes. So we had new people at Sunday, new families, new college, actually a lot of college students were there. And, uh, and we get to spend three hours just describing this family, describing what it's like here. So Paul talks about the history of Sunnybrook, talks about the history of the church, and then more specifically the history of Sunnybrook. And Paul's been here for a while. And I always come away from those sessions saying, I could listen to hours more of Paul telling stories about Sunnybrook. And he just shares with these new families, considering making this their church home, what it's meant for him for the past 35 years. And, and, you know, we talk about, well, it was planted out of Ninth Avenue, and then there was the building over on Sunnybrook Lane, and, and then at some point, well, the, this property was purchased, and this building was built, and then it was expanded that way, and the children's wing was expanded, which is all well and good, and I think that's really helpful stuff to know, but Paul, like, he almost weeps through the whole hour of his presentation, because you know what he's doing is he's talking about this family, He's grateful for buildings and properties and the ability to, to do what we do and the resources necessary to do it, but I guarantee that whole time he's just seeing faces and names as he shares, and he's telling prospective family members about the family that he loves so much. Then I get up and I talk about some of our core convictions, what we believe about Jesus, what we believe about the scripture, the Holy Spirit, the church, the gospel, this, that, and the other. Just kind of 30,000 foot view of these are the things that we preach and teach here. These are the convictions that we hold on to. Jim comes up and he talks about what does it look like if Paul has cast a vision for how beautiful this family can be, Jim comes in and says, how do we do that now? And he really gives like a, a really helpful explanation of what it might mean for you to join this family and therefore to go and to gather and to grow and to live life as a family of believers. Um, and then the last thing we do, we don't make anybody sign a card. There are no blood oaths there. We just say, given everything we've talked about, given the questions you've asked and the answers we've been able to provide, are you in? And we just put this paragraph up on the wall and we kind of walk through it and say, this is kind of what you're committing to. So we're asking, given all this, for you, by God's leading, can you commit to being an active member of the local church community at Sunnybrook Christian Church? Do you acknowledge Christ as your Lord and Savior and will you live out your commitment to him through the local church body in the areas of sanctification or spiritual growth, worship, giving, serving, community? Do you acknowledge the leadership and their authority in spiritual matters, including church discipline? Do you commit to pray for the health of Sunnybrook as part of the body of Christ, to pray for its elders, ministry staff, ministry leaders, and members? Have you given prayerful consideration of what it means to be a member of a Sunnybrook Christian church, and do you express your commitment to be part of this body until God clearly leads you elsewhere? With this family, we're basically saying, this is our family. Do you want to join this family? Like, can you commit to this stuff? Um, by the time they get to the membership class, most of the um, reservations have already been resolved. Now, not many people are inclined to give us three hours of their Saturday morning if they're not so sure this is for them. But when I have conversations prior, and there are occasional 
um, reservations, I won't even say objections per se, but just reservations about membership. There's, a, there, there's two primary reasons that I run into. Um, the first is that I'm not so sure membership to a local church is really a biblical thing. And that's fine. I mean, I, I, I believe it is, but I don't know if I have to die on that hill. Um, I'm willing to carry that conversation on, and, and I'm even willing for you to conclude that I'm wrong. That's fine. The other one that I'll frequently get, probably even more so, is that, yeah, that sounds messy. That sounds like a lot of commitment. I mean, have you met most people? They're hard to deal with. And you're asking me to yoke myself to a thousand of them? Yeah, kind of. So you're asking me, and they would never even put it in these terms, but you can sense it underneath the objections. You're asking me, um, my life, I kind of like my life. My wife and I have our weekends kind of sorted out. We have our travel scheduled just right. We have our kids and their activities. We spend our money on certain things, and we like the freedom to allocate our resources to those sorts of things. And you're asking me to rearrange all of those priorities? And kind of. And what's interesting is that when we start to talk about family in this sense, um, we have to reconcile how we respond to the invitation to join this family and how we actually think about functional church unity and fellowship. So these lofty ideals here on the screen, uh, they, can be, they can be a lot. But as I, as I kind of went down the road a little bit to... Um, what is it that, that makes us uh, hesitant? Some of it is, um, maybe you could just describe it as kind of underlying selfishness. And I don't mean that to be offensive. It just seems accurate. But I, I, I have what I want, and I want it to be how I want it. And I, I'm willing to associate with many others, so long as they're like me and like to do the things I want and want to prioritize their lives the way that I want to prioritize mine. Well, this asks you to maybe involve more people than that. Um, so I thought these are some, some uh, mildly to moderately humor, humorous ways of describing kind of how we want to, to look at the rest of the world and our, um, our desire to associate with it, voluntarily so. So a man named Louis Morris said this. He said, you can always tell when a man's well-informed. His views are pretty much like your own. What Louis is saying is, I love people that see the world exactly how I do. I love people that think the same things I do. Or Samuel Johnson, who was uh, one of the editors of the, one of the earliest English dictionaries. Jim Johnson believes that he is somehow distantly related to this man. I don't know if that's true or if that's aspirational thing. Um, but Samuel Johnson says this. He says, my idea of an agreeable person is one who agrees with me. And I think we can all get that. While we're talking about dictionaries, maybe a, a, a foolish, if not sometimes accurate, definition of the word admiration is that it's our polite recognition of another person's resemblance to ourselves. I really admire all these qualities about this guy. And if you're listening carefully, I would probably just be describing myself in another form. 
don't know if that's bad. But I don't know if the unity that Jesus prays for in John 17 has a lot of room for that kind of thinking. There's a silly parable called horseback logic. A small boy and his sister were riding on the back of a new wooden horse given to them as a present. Suddenly the boy turned to his sister and said, if one of us would get off, there would be more room for me. (laughs) We like to set the terms ourselves. But what if the unity that Jesus prays for in John 17 doesn't really have um, terms that you and I get to set? What if it's outside of us? I can think of um, just... Go down this road toward the, 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 the concept of unity in the church with me. I can think of a number of different ways to somewhat manufacture unity. Um, for some of us, it feels unifying to just simply keep the peace. In a big room like this, let's keep the peace. Let's not, um, let's not voice any dissenting opinions. Let's not argue about it too much. In fact, maybe if we all be quiet, we can simply play nice and keep the peace, and then we will have unity. Or there is a unity that is um, knit together by solidarity and uniformity. When we can all see things the same way, when we can all stand shoulder to shoulder in, like, in, in great agreement on whatever question there is, then we are unified. Paul just seems to talk about love in terms of bearing with one another, not learning how to always be on the same page all the time. So we could keep the peace, or we could manufacture solidarity and uniformity, or... Another form of unity, another, um, another idea that, or, or, or kind of outlook that can maybe bring us together would be to, um, to aspire to extreme diversity and inclusion. Only when everyone's welcome, only when everyone has a voice at the table will there be unity. Really, whether you're keeping the peace by keeping silent, whether you're manufacturing solidarity and uniformity by making everyone the same, or whether you're manufacturing diversity and inclusion by making sure that everyone is different, you're always saying no to someone. You're always saying no to someone. And quite frankly, I think that all of those strategies are attempts at unity that make us its creator. But if we were to ask the question, what is it that ties the family of God together It's not our ability to agree. It's not our ability to share an outlook. It's not our ability to be as diverse as possible. It's it's our union with Jesus. John 17, 3, Jesus begins this whole prayer by saying this. He says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and the one you have sent So Jesus is going to to spend the rest of the prayer. He prays first for himself, then his disciples, then for us. He's going to spend the rest of the prayer fleshing out what oneness among believers actually looks like. And he's going to ask his father to make that so. But he does so by beginning with, like, 
They're one because they know the Father and they know the Son. It's our union with Jesus that makes us family. It's our union with Jesus that makes us one in some sense, as this prayer works, it way, works its way out, in some sense as the Father, Son, and Spirit are one. Most certainly not in the same way or to the same degree, but Jesus keeps holding up the relationship he has with his Father as what he wants for us to have with one another, and he roots it in himself, in our connection, in our knowledge of the Father, and in our knowledge of the Son. So, Jesus it is what ties Jesus' followers together. And when he does that, he creates for himself a family. And then he begins praying for the responsibilities that you and I will therefore have as members of that family. The first is this. He says the, the responsibilities that the gospel demands. first one is Belief. Belief in Jesus. Verse 7. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you, because I've given them the words you gave me. They've received them and have known for certain that I came from you. They have believed that you sent me. So to know the Father, to know the Son, is to receive the words given to Jesus and to believe them. It also calls for our endurance. In verse 11, Jesus, uh, alluding to his passion that will come soon in this gospel, he says, I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by your name that you have given me so that they may be one as we are one. So this gospel creates a context where belief is demanded. It creates a context where, where endurance is required. And Jesus prays to his Father that he would protect you and I from a world that is going to turn against us. And he doesn't say so that we can necessarily endure to the end, which that's certainly implied. But the reason he gives here is so that we would be one. He wants us to stand shoulder to shoulder in our endurance to the opposition to the gospel not necessarily in a shared outlook on every little thing. Our unity is on him, and it is through him. The third responsibility we see in this prayer, assumed as a demand as a result of the gospel, is that we would be distinct from this world that we need protection from. Verse 14, he says, I've given them your word. The world hated them because they're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. When our union in Christ creates for us a unity in a familial sense, and we are by definition no longer part of the world. And so he assumes that we'll be distinct so much so that he also reminds us that our responsibility is to become more holy. In verse 17, he prays, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is true. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. Make them holy by your truth. 
So if it's Jesus that ties Jesus' followers together, and if it's Jesus that therefore um, inaugurates this unity that Jesus is praying for, and, and we're to look like one as the Father and the Son are one, and if this, this, this relationship we now have with Jesus because we believe in him and because we know him, we know the Father, is that produces in us the responsibility to believe, the responsibility to endure, the responsibility to be distinct, and the responsibility to become more holy, then what does all of that add up to? Because Jesus prays in such a way that it's, it's not really for us. And it's not in this sense, it's not in this case, for this room. He's created a family, not for our sake, but for the world's sake. You start to go and tie in other ideas. Like, you're the salt of the earth. Or you're the light of the world. Like Jesus built this so that those who are not yet part of this will see it. And will be drawn to it. So we're family for the world's sake. And and John connects this to our, our common baptism into Christ. He says we've been united to Christ in baptism. And it obliterates all the things that distinguish us from one another. But will create... Um, an incredible distinction between us and the world. So John, or the Apostle Paul in Galatians 3 says, for those of you who are baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now Paul writes those famous words at a time where there were definitely still Jews and Greeks. There are definitely still slaves and free people. There were definitely still men and women. But he says, those distinctions under the gospel do not matter when it comes to your unity because of the union you have with Christ. And then back in John 17, Jesus prays that this would actually come true. He says, I pray not only for these disciples. So this is John 17, verse 20. Uh, I pray not only for these disciples, so the 11 that were still there, uh, Judas is gone, but also for those who believe in me through their word. That's us. We believe because of their word. Like we, because of the, the Holy Spirit's providential preservation of God's inspired word, you and I have an opportunity to believe in Jesus, to know Jesus and to know his Father, which Jesus has already defined in verse 3 as eternal life, is to know them. And then he says this about us. Verse 21. May they all be one. As you, Father, are in me, and I am in you, may they also be in us. Why? Look at all of these purpose statements. Why? So that the world may believe you sent me. Jesus is wanting us to be unified into the the triune Godhead so that the world can see and believe that Jesus was indeed sent by his Father. Verse 22, I have given them the glory that you have given me. That is one of the most stunning statements in the entire Bible to me, and I pause every time I see it. The fact that Jesus would share his glory with you and I feels insane to me. I can't even explain it very well. It just feels like 
really, I, I get that the Father and the Son share their glory, totally makes sense, but whenever it comes to me, I just don't feel like that, like I don't feel like I make the cut. I love Jared O'Neill, but it just seems kind of weird that Jared gets to like enjoy Jesus' glory from all eternity past. But Jesus and his Father and the Spirit are so overflowing with grace that they pour out their glory that is rightfully theirs that you and I do not deserve, pours it out and shares it with us in some way. And then he tells us why. So that they may be one as we are one. And to be honest, the more I read through this, the more I read this, it doesn't become less abstract to me. This feels like an exercise in philosophical semantics at times. And this is one of those texts. I believe the same thing about some of the stuff in early John 14, that it just feels something to be marveled at and believed more so than to be dissected. When I look at verse 22, and he says that he has shared his glory, given to him by his Father with us, so that we would be unified. Then he says, I am in them, and you are in me. Why? So that they may be made completely one. He seems very concerned with our oneness. Why? So that the world may know you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. God wants the new relationships that you and I experience as brothers and sisters in this family of God to be on display for the world to see so that they could see in us, the only one that can save them, Jesus. And it sounds really similar to um, a passage in John 13, where Jesus, uh, he doesn't redefine love, but he highlights it in a different way. He says in John 13, I give you a new command, love one another. And then as he tends to, Jesus gives himself as the example. He says, just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. And he says, when you do, everyone will know that you are my disciples. If you love one another. So when we love like Jesus loves, we are known for being part of Jesus' family. And when we are one as a family, Jesus says, that communicates to the world who he is. So what does this kind of love look like? In Ephesians 4, the Apostle Paul lays it out in a really interesting way. He says, speaking to a church, after having made all of his doctrinal cases for the gospel and the identity of Jesus in chapters 1 through 3, he begins Ephesians 4 like this. He says, therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, urge you, the people of God, to walk worthy of the calling you have received. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Now, for the record, the bond of peace is not peacemaking. It's, it's recognizing the peace that Jesus has, uh, has, has created as he's broken down the dividing wall of hostilities. Verse 4, there is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope at your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. Quite frankly, that sounds like a more beautiful version of a membership covenant than ours. But it seems 
just as idealistic and aspirational. And I read that, and I'm like, yeah, but have you met people? They're messy. I recently showed my Sunday school class a sermon, a preacher that I really love. He has a sermon on the messiness of ministry. And he just, he says, people won't sit still. He's like, they're moving targets. His, his attempts to, to, to placate and make everyone happy and to manufacture peace are just ill-fated from the beginning. It's like he needs something greater than that. So when we look at Paul's description of uh, the unity of the church or when we write our own for Sunnybrook and they feel um, hopeful at best, but not all that tangible sometimes, um, I think we have to ask ourselves to what degree have we committed to allow the Spirit to change us, to do what he is designed to do by creating for himself a family that will function as a light on the hill such that the lost world who desperately needs to know who Jesus is can look at us and see him. So the question that I kind of want to leave us with and let linger when we do family, and when push comes to shove, and it's not always easy, when we do family and push comes to shove and it's another election year, when we do family and push comes to shove and we just don't see eye to eye on this social issue or that economic question, can we commit ahead of time to resolve to be durable rather than divisive? Can we um, not get our way instead of dividing? Or as Paul says, 1 Corinthians 13, can we allow our love to bear all things, to believe all things, to hope all things, to endure all things? You see, Paul talks about a love a lot. He talks a lot about living life within the church, and he seldom recommends that you, I can't think of anywhere where he recommends that when they get their act together, then love them really well. When they agree with you, then just serve them because it will be so much easier. He talks about love as if it's difficult and yet necessary. So rather than being divisive, can I be durable and commit before there's any tension to enduring all things, to bearing with one another, to being patient, and to recognize that our hope is not on the current situation, but on something greater, more transcendent, and more eternal. And it takes work to live that out. It's all fun and games, and it's easy to commit to be unified when there's nothing really disrupting that unity, but my goodness, whenever the, the ripples come, it's not easy. The last, maybe every election cycle of my getting longer life has just left a terrible taste in my mouth, not with the results, but with the process 
and the way that the backbiting continues to infiltrate the church. That's just one example of that when push comes to shove, sometimes we're not all that interested in the unity that we have in Christ. Sometimes we're not all that interested in doing the hard work of bearing with one another and enduring with one another and putting up with one another and being patient with one another. First Corinthians 12, a little earlier, Paul says, he kind of describes the difficulty of it. He says, God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the less honorable so that there would be no vision in, division in the body, but that the members would have the same concern for each other. So if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. It takes work. But we have to remind ourselves that Jesus has shared his glory with us, as he says in 1722, so that we may be one as he is one with his Father. And maybe it can be helpful to properly discern the difference between true unity or the the pseudo-unity that we sometimes work toward, which just ends up being uniformity in the end. And one author compares the two pretty well. He says this, he says, we must distinguish between unity and uniformity. The former, unity, is voluntary. The latter is compelled. The former, unity, is an inner condition. The latter is outward form. Unity must be the condition created in us by the Holy Spirit as we follow him in a common goal and purpose to make effective God's redeeming work in Christ to the ends of the earth until he comes again. The long and the short of John 17 is that we are to be one and somehow that is an uh, undeniable element of our evangelism that the world desperately needs. The Apostle Peter, in 1 Peter 4, says this way, he says, Just as each one has received a gift, members of the church, the household of God, use it to serve others as good stewards of the varied, varied grace of God. It's like Peter is saying, look, as those who have experienced the grace of God by hearing the gospel and having their hearts opened to it, as those who have experienced the grace of God by repenting of your sins and confessing your allegiance to Christ, as those who have experienced the grace of God by submitting to Christ and uniting to him in baptism, as those who have experienced the grace of God by being given a new family, as those who have experienced the grace of God by being uniquely gifted to minister to others in these incredible ways that we couldn't do on our own but that God has given us, he says, use that to serve one another. The fact is, we need each other. We need each other. Um, John 17 is, is one of the many places, but uh, it's certainly one of the places that says there is no such thing as an independently owned and operated Christian. To follow Jesus takes place in the context of Jesus' family. Um, look, I get that church is difficult sometimes. And I get that people can be difficult sometimes. You just read the New Testament and realize that Jesus really loves his bride. And if 
If unity is difficult, I get it. It doesn't make it optional. Because Jesus loves this group so much. He loves the church universal and he loves the local manifestations of his bride. And so I think I'm supposed to love her too. We know from Paul that love bears with, is patient with, endures with, serves. So we need each other. It takes many trees to make a forest, guys. And the, uh, the union that you and I have as individuals with Christ, it yokes us together in a far deeper way than I think we even imagine. And my mind keeps going back to this sermon that Moss preached about a year ago. I said, the fact that you are united with Christ means you have more in common with any other believer on the planet than you do with anyone standing next to you that shares all your similar hobbies and passions. And so in that, we're unified. So as we uh, stand and worship here in a second, the people you worship with are family. We're going to treat them as such. As you go to lunch with family or friends after the service, as, as many of you will go off to your life groups this evening, as you just go about your week, running into other brothers and sisters who themselves have been united to Christ and therefore yoked to you. What are ways that we can be more unified? What are ways that we can bear with one another and therefore demonstrate the love of Christ? So I pray that the Spirit of God will give you the eyes you need to see one another as gospel-proclaiming members of one body. Pray that when tensions rise, the Spirit will sanctify our commitment to be durable people, not divisive people. Um, this family is about a thousand people strong, and so loving everyone is not always going to be easy. But our love should bear all things, believe all things, hope all things, and endure all things. And as is so common when you just have the goodness of the gospel. This meal ends up being a very visible, very visceral demonstration of the unity we have with God. There are maybe billions of people today having the same meal um, many of them do it at a different frequency or a different uh, method where they consider these elements to have um, a different significance than others but it's it's one meal we have one Lord one faith and this is something we do every week as a strong, visible reminder of the unity that we have with one another because of the union we have with the one who gave his body for us. So we eat, remembering the sacrifice that was given on our behalf and for our family commitment. And we drink the cup of redemption, knowing full well that this had to be done in order to deal with our sin problem 
and to create for God a new 